welcome to Resync, the show where I interview people about how they're finding meaning in their lives and how that's helping them create systemic change. Today's show is with Carl Tashian. Carl is a coach, entrepreneur, leader, and programmer. He started programming as a young kid, eventually helping Zipcar build their initial technology, co-founded Yurtle, a sharing platform, and is now coaching other programs and entrepreneurs. I'm really happy to share this conversation as the first episode of the series. Carl really opens his heart and shares deeply about both exciting and challenging times in his life. He's launching a new chapter in his career after slowing down and letting go of a lifelong fear and impatience. Being this open isn't easy, but it's so important for us to share both our successes and our vulnerable moments. We're all figuring out various parts of life and only through these sorts of real conversations can we keep putting more of it together. His lifelong curiosity and commitment to do things authentically shine through our conversation. We cover his work as an early engineer at Zipcar, the other path he didn't take then and why, how he got through a challenging phase in his life in New York, the differences he sees between doing and being, what it takes to really focus, and then an incredible story he shares about transforming his relationship to fear through improved sleep and a poignant meditation experience, and so much more. So enjoy letting his curiosity about being human and doing important work inspire you in your life. Without further ado, let's dive into the conversation. One of the things I'm, I'm really interested in is, with you, Carl, is that it seems this, this pull you've had and the directions you've wanted to go have been um, somewhat pretty clear. Like I, I was looking through your your different places you've worked and there's constantly themes around sort of social impact and other sorts of ways you wanted to, the arts and creativity and, and even today the projects you seem to take on have a lot of those elements in them. And so I'm just trying to understand what makes Carl, Carl? I think that my parents gave me so much latitude to explore my curiosities um, that it didn't feel unsafe for me to follow whatever it was that I thought was um, going to be exciting. It felt like, right. Um, and I think they helped me with that confidence. Um, I remember after college um, going to get my first job and I was interviewing around Boston in 2001. And I would do these interviews and I'd be like, I would see the space that people were working in, like the physical office environment, these cubicles and like the fluorescent lights <laughs> and um, just like papers everywhere. One of the places I interviewed at was one of the, um, the hosts of SSL certificates. And I was like, okay, in, in a way that's interesting, but... When I saw the environment um, and I talked to the people, I was like, this just isn't right. And I can't, I just, there was a part of me that just was like, I can't go through with this interview. Like, I can't, I, I'm not going to keep interviewing for something I don't want. And it was despairing for me because I had just gotten this degree and I was like, am I going to even be able to find something that I'm excited about? Yeah. doing professionally in the space that I just got a degree in. <laughs> um, but that fear didn't 
um, result in me taking a job I didn't want. And I was lucky to have a place to live where I wasn't paying any rent. I was staying with a roommate's mom in a, in a house where she had an extra room. And um, she just let me stay there while I kind of figured myself out for like a, about six months, I think. Wow. And it was great that, I'm, I mean, I feel really lucky because I didn't have any money, but it was like a good, it was a stable enough situation that I could explore until I found what was really going to work. And that was Zipcar, ultimately. And like that interview went completely differently. Like I knew right away, I have a really strong connection with the person I'd be working for. I love what the company is doing. I'm excited about the technology. Like it kind of ticked off all the boxes immediately. And what made, tell me a little about Zipcar. So what made the Zipcar experience exciting and then what made it something you wanted to move on from at the end of the day? It was exciting because it was, so I had worked in startups before. My experience in high school was working in an internet provider um, in Nashville. And I loved the environment there. Um, I loved learning from all the people around me, like all the equipment that would come in and just like networking and all the stuff, you know, Linux, like Linux 1.0. And this company felt like it was was a bigger version of that. Um, Zipcar felt like there's tons of interesting technology here. Um, I love the people. It's small. It was eight people at the time. Um, and it had the sense of like, I saw these eight people or 10 people as it was just starting to grow doing their work. And I would look around at what was happening in the world with the company, like people using it and the way our members, the experiences the members were having. And I was like, it's magic when a group of people can come together and make something bigger than they could individually. And that's how it felt. It felt like something magic was, there was some magic in it because it just, it just was so, um, it was the most sort of real thing I'd ever worked on. <laughs> and that was exciting. That sounds awesome. Was there any um, story of somebody using it in some way that felt like this is exactly what we envisioned as engineers or that ma- magical moment? Was there a, a sort of image or specific memory? Well, Rob and Chase always said, the, the founder, she always said that, that we wanted to make using a car as easy as using an ATM. And that was a really nice vision to work from because we didn't have... So it was really... In the early days, there were two of us engineers. It was me and my, college room, my former college roommate, Greg, um, and a head of engineering. And we didn't have a product team. Like there was no like product management or product or design or anything like that. So it was really on us to not only build the technology, but make it the vision of the ATM, you know, car ATM ease um, (laughs) possible. Yeah. And so there was at least a couple of years in there where that was really a driver for me and very exciting to go in every day and just think about, and look, look at how people were using the service, look at what kind of feedback we were getting, and then think about what, what's the next thing that I can do? <clears throat> what's the next thing that I can do with this technology um, 
that will make it even smoother. Mm. So just continuing to smooth out the experience for people. Wow. That's amazing how like a simple analogy can be a lifetime or a career or a job. Absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) Um, One question that brings up for me that I wanted to ask you about overall was, do you see a theme in your work? Um, It's definitely been very product focused. Um, That's not to say that I don't love talking about um, infrastructure and the hardcore low-level engineering stuff. But um, for me, the beauty is when it all comes together. The infrastructure, the... um, the code and the, um, the experience that people have. And what gets me most excited is not the software, it's the human side. It's, it's what, what people actually, how they feel when they're using technology. Hmm. That's one thing that's uh, really interesting to me about you is I, I feel like you have in your career managed a lot of technical complexity, all these, you know, complex technologies like Zipcar as well as the emotional complexity and I think a lot of engineers have less of that emotional interest or understanding and I am curious how you're able to be so interested in in such different topics in such deep levels I don't know that's a good question (laughs) one thing that I'm thinking about when you say that though is um, is like it makes me think about consciousness in general and how what is required to be an engineer or designer in terms of the mindset um i think a designer designers are really interesting one to look at because i feel like i'm a designer at heart who just happened to spend a lot of time writing code <laughs> um what a designer has to do is um build kind of like a garden of abstractions and and thoughts and ideas around, um, you know, an experience or a service or whatever it is they're designing and has to, um, you know, it's kind of all the levels of it, right? It's, it it goes from the emotional side, which is very open and present to the most, you know, single pixel color choices, all of the like super detailed decisions um, that don't feel, um, they don't feel as connected to the present. Does that make sense? So yeah, yeah, it does. So it's this practice then, and maybe there's a way in which engineering is is like this too. But there's this practice where like you have to be able to be present enough to experience the emotions and um, and have a connection to the emotional like journey. And then also be sort of have another part of your mind that you can go to that's that's motivated to zoom in on you know um, envision or in, in like in like Figma or Photoshop or whatever and like do the actual pixel level work. Hmm. Um, that's not. This is. I'm not. I don't. I am. I think of myself as a designer, but that's actually more. I, I'm. I'm translating what I do as an engineer to that space because I don't actually do a whole lot of like pixel level design work. Um, but it feels the same to me. Like I don't think of. In, in fact, it's nice to not think of them as disciplines. 
it's nice to kind of let go of the idea of design and engineering as being two different things. Like we tend to like right now focus on separating those out in organizations and like having product be between them and all this stuff. But to me, it's like one thing because the, the, the end, the goal of the whole thing is just a great experience for people and it has to all come together. I couldn't agree more. I think we do kind of sometimes separate too much out in the world. So I appreciate you saying that. One thing I'm curious about is with this practice, it sounds so um, skilled to be able to go from emotions to the, the pixel level of the engineering. I know that's not you know a visual pixel for, per se. Is there a, a way you could describe what it feels like or what that skill is in practice, like how you shift that way? Because I think that is it's really powerful. I don't know how I did it before, um, like in in my twenties or in my teens, but um, there's a way to do it that feels like iteration, which is just like um, getting into and being really motivated by the feedback loop of user experience. So at Zipcar, we would code all of the calls, the customer service calls coming in. And we'd code them, we'd assign them codes so that we could see like week by week and day by day what are the things people are calling about the most. And then that became a very motivating feedback loop for me because I would look at it and go, oh, everybody's having trouble using the, the credit card to get gas or people don't know how to open the door. Like that was a big one actually as we were growing. It was like people didn't know how to use... RFID cards, right? Um, and they kept trying to swipe the card like they would a credit card on the windshield of the car. And so we, so like one of the big engineering innovations of Zipcar was a sticker that went onto the windshield that says "Hold card here." Genius. <laughs> um, and I think, yeah. So uh, I don't know if I'm answering your question, but. Um, that was that felt very iterative to me, and, and in terms of the mindset, it felt like I was doing engineering by designing the sticker or whatever it was that needed to happen that day. Mm. Um, more recently, I feel like I've gotten into more. I've gotten into. I've thought about this more. This mindset question, and um, I was reading a book. It's called Immunity to Change, and it's like uh, it's a coaching book um, for executives and for coaches. And he, this is by a guy at Harvard, a psychologist at Harvard, and he talks about um, these models for mental complexity. Like I think of it as like developmental stages, and I don't know how this ties in, but I want to. It's like something I'm really curious about. He says that there's sort of, and this is this is where all the studies are, are around psych around psychology right now um, in this area. He's like, there's three stages of mental complexity. Um, one of the the sort of first stage is called the socialized mind. Uh, the second stage is called the self-authoring mind, and the, the third stage is the self-transforming mind. And when you're in the socialized mind, which is where we most of us come, all of us come from, right? That's where we kind of start 
our lives. You're just buying into whatever the socialization is um, of the, the, all the stories around you. You're completely bought into it, and that's your world. And when you transition to the self-authoring mind, that's kind of like a step into leadership because you suddenly are the one with the point of view about everything, and you, are, you become the leader of the people and the socializer of ideas, mm-hmm. right? Um, the self-transforming mind is a little harder to talk about, but I think it's touching on what you are asking um, because it's the mind that can build, that, that doesn't remain so committed to one model. So the self-authoring mind is one that the downside of it, if you can call it a downside, is that it's kind of a prisoner to the model that it's developed. Um, so it's been able to break out of the socialization, but it's still like, it's not interested in any information outside of itself, uh, outside of its model that doesn't make the model stronger. Mm. And the self-transforming mind, on the other hand, is like realizing that the world is a lot more complex than that. And allowing for multiple models to evolve and be tested against each other and, you know, shifted between. Wow. So you're saying it's the the technical or the emotional, they're all just data, and you can have some expertise and skills in each one, but to think that one can be the answer totally is uh, limiting yourself in an earlier stage than you want to work in. Yeah, I think... um, it's so, and, and yeah, and that touches upon this idea of just embracing the complexity. You know, like it's funny to say embracing complexity because we're talking about uh, um, a, a very crude model of for how the mind works, which is the most complex, unnameable <laughs> thing. Right. Good point. <laughs> and so I want to just like, that's the caveat around yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. But, um, but I do experience it now um, as, like, we have a choice about whether we are going to, we, we, each of us has a choice about how much we want to listen to our own sort of thoughts versus just being in the present. And I think that that's the self-transforming mind from my perspective as far as I've been able to unlock it. It feels like when I want to, I decide to focus on just being right here with you. And when I am um, when I am needing more of the like technical knowledge that's that's more like a, in the garden of abstractions in my mind, <laughs> then I can decide to shift my attention to that. Um, and some and I sort of see this in terms of like. You know, when I meet up with engineers after work, um, you know, I had a dinner the other day with an engineer, and it was like he kind of had like computer head, right? Which I we all know this feeling of just like I've been staring at the screen for too long, and just like fully in my own garden of abstractions. I'm not living in this world right now, and it takes a little while, right? It takes yeah, like a good definitely. half an hour, hour, whatever it is, to just like return to here. But knowing that it's possible to, have, to, to move between those spaces within my own mind and knowing that I, I actually have a choice, it's not, it's not just, uh, it's up to me. It's not just, uh, I don't just have to work with whatever is happening. Um, that feels like a huge breakthrough. Yeah. It does sound pretty transformative. And 
makes me just really happy that, that that's, you're able to do that because I think it is really challenging when we work in one groove to it gets deeper each time we go in it and so it's harder sometimes to get out to mm-hmm. be able to shift from engineering mind I had this like image of uh like bedhead but engineering head instead you're instead of being your hair messed up Total by the pillow yeah. your hair is messed up by like the motherboard or something yeah absolutely <laughs> but in any case that's great that you're able to do that um i would love to shift the conversation a little bit if that's okay sure i would love to ask you a little bit more about um I don't know how to say this other than the complexities of being an adult. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So um, there is this curiosity you've described um, and it sounds like it's really, you know, carried you definitely in your adult life and in your childhood life. But I also sense from the different projects you've worked on some really big challenges and sometimes you've been really tested and tried and, I want I wanted you to just tell me a little bit about one of those times and um, a little bit about how you transitioned from being a kid to having to handle some of these difficult times and and how you're able to get get through it. Well, what comes up right away when you ask that is um, a couple of years around two thousand six, two thousand eight, when. My partner and I lived in New York City, and it was very difficult. It uh, felt like growing up in a big way to move to New York. Mm-hmm. Um, I was in my late 20s, and we barely had enough money to be there. Um, and as soon as we moved there, I felt, so the struggle for me was um, a, at least twofold. One, I couldn't sleep. I was sick, like, all the time. Jeez. And um, it just kind of um, perpetuated itself. And I was like, so I was just, I started drinking lots of coffee, and then I started having panic attacks from, like, too much caffeine and um it just kind of spiraled out of control and I um really felt super unhealthy and it was really difficult to get anything done um the the way I experienced that was um a kind of lack of focus that comes from I think being sleep deprived that's real (laughs) yeah (laughs) And just every day. Yeah. And it was like I couldn't stay with anything, any project that I tried to take on. And so I would have these, like, there were things I was excited about in New York, but I generally stayed in the apartment and didn't do those things. The best thing I did that whole time was to learn how to cook because I had a roommate who was an amazing cook and food writer. Hmm. Um, And that I could do. It was like enough. I had enough focus to be able to make a meal. (laughs) Yeah. Um, but it was really not a fun time. And, um, I ended up, um, it, 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 we just didn't, we ended up not staying there because I was having, it felt like I was allergic to the city. Um, and I would just, yeah, I just remember waking up every morning and being like, I 
feel like I didn't sleep at all. Like I feel worse than I did the day before, like every day. Um, so I did some cool projects while I was there in that short period. I worked at the Museum of Natural History for a little bit and did some software for them and um, worked with a professor at ITP at NYU um, on some stuff that she was doing. And, it, and then my partner was working and thankfully had a more stable situation than I did and was getting better sleep than I was. Aww. So she was able to actually make um, some money for the house during that time. Um, but eventually I just threw up my hands and I was like, I don't want to move somewhere else in New York and, experience, and lock myself into another year lease and feel like the way I'm feeling right now. But um, so I don't know what to do. And um, that actually precipitated our move out to San Francisco mm. because it was such a painful experience. Yeah. There are times where that happens, right? Things aren't, the world is not the life you need or there's just not an alignment in something. Yeah. And New York is not a place to find health really, <laughs> for most people. Oh my God. When I lived there, I just remember feeling the stress on the streets, just like people walking. They just felt like they were just passing stress to you. Yeah. Um, the other piece that made it hard for me to live there was having grown up in Nashville. Yeah. Um, New York felt like moving to another country. Mm-hmm. Uh, in particular, people that the few people I knew in the city were only available for about 30 minutes a month Jeez. to have coffee. <laughs> so I didn't feel like very supported by that. But it taught me something really important, which was um, when I did get to have that 30 minutes with them, I learned how to open up right away and just get right into whatever it was that I wanted to get into with them. And so New York, cut to the chase. Just give me, get you right to the point. <laughs> yeah, because there was, but in Nashville growing up, it's Nashville's like, I think of Nashville as like a living room community where people come over and hang out oh, for nice. like hours. So that, that if you're going to be vulnerable with someone, if you're going to open up to someone, it might happen in like the sixth hour of hanging out. <laughs> and in New York, it's like, no. You got to get right there. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I can relate to that. Um, So shifting from when you moved to San Francisco to today, what helped you offload some of that, um, you know, baggage you might have gained when this kind of more stressful time? Was there a experience or two that has helped you really let go of some of these things? Um, Well, I definitely got better sleep as soon as we moved. Um, (laughs) However, um, this feeling of a lack of focus continued. And it actually continued into a startup that I started in 2012 here and was only around for about nine months because of exactly the same thing. It was like every week we had a different product idea. Mm -hmm. My co-founder and I both had this. um, We were both kind of voracious, voraciously curious people with um, not quite enough focus to to really get into something. Actually, I have a line from a, a blog post you wrote about that. Uh-huh. <laughs> but from the beginning, we bore the curse of too much freedom. We could get through one or two loops for a given problem space, but it was too easy for us to abandon an emerging model at the first or second hurdle. New ideas are gangly and unrefined, and we were impatient. I'm really interested, Carl, about your your impatience because I feel like there's this this um, element of that that's been part of you, some of your work and some of your life. And I'm just curious how that relates to the um, letting go and transformation part. I don't know if you have anything you want to say about that, but I just 
feel like I have this interest in learning what you have to say about that. Mm. Yeah, when I think about that time and that writing you just read, um, it was definitely something that I had to... Um, I, it was a, It feels like self... It felt like a lack of self-knowledge when I look back at it now. Um, and I didn't... I, 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 yeah, I felt that there, the impatience was coming from a place of fear that had been with me my whole life. Um, and the... Um, the, the lack of focus um, was, I guess, a side effect of that. But also, I want to say, had a lot to do with... I wasn't sure why I was starting a startup really in my heart at that time. Um, I knew that I liked this person I was working with. Um, I liked the opportunity to spend time with him and, and develop these ideas. But... Um, but I didn't have the sort of um, conviction, the deep conviction that comes from self-knowledge, I think, that would have allowed us to, um, would have allowed me to say, here's what I'm excited about, here's what I'm not excited about, and we're going to do these things. These, this is what I want to do. This is where I want to go with this. So where did the, what changed? Like where did the... Change to have more self knowledge come from, and it all comes from meditation. <laughs> um, and having learned that in just the last couple of years, um, and I was able a year or so ago to to let go of a lot of that fear that was making me feel the impatience that was leading to the lack of focus and was part of it. So meditation and also um, continuing to get better sleep and um, and working on that were the, the two pieces. Because the sleep also contributed to the lack of focus, as we discussed. So, yeah. so um, yeah, I mean, I had an incredible meditation retreat a little over a year ago where um, I was really able to feel myself letting go of a lot of that stuff. Where when I look back at it, it feels like fear was in the driver's seat of my life until a year or so ago. And then I did something through meditation where I was able to um, change the kind of seat of my consciousness or something so that um, fear is sort of off to the side now. What'd you do? Um, Just meditation, just a lot of silence, five days of sitting and walking and, um, and really... Um, letting go. So it's not about doing, is it? <laughs> I thought it was about doing for a long time. What's it about? <laughs> it's just being. Uh. <laughs> and that feels like that's what meditation is. It's just being. Mm-hmm. It's not like, it's not magic. It's not anything that special people get to do that other people don't get to do. It's just being. And what do you see as the difference between doing and being? It's um, maybe two words that we could try out for that would be intending versus allowing. So intending is this act of 
thinking and then having a desire and then pursuing that mm-hmm. and allowing is, yeah, why don't you tell me a little bit more about both of those? Yeah, allowing is just let's check out what's going on mm. in the world around us. Let's just check it out and let's just allow it to be what it is. Sounds very nebulous. It is nebulous, <laughs> and that's great. I love it. Yeah. Wow, what a difference to completely have something like their relationship to fear change so fundamentally. In this retreat, was it a gradual process where just each day it kind of faded away, or was there specific moments or things that happened during it that were the, the deeper change? So I was at this retreat, and we had just had dinner. It was kind of dusk. And I went walking around the neighborhood near the retreat center. And in one of the yards, there was a sign that, um, that said something that reminded me of a song my parents had sang when I was growing up. I'd heard it a thousand times. And I started singing the song in my head. And I was just in this mental space where I was like playing with it. And I just started crying. And it was clearly there was something there for me emotionally. Um, at that moment, I had opened up enough through meditation to allow something deep from the subconscious to come up, and it was just presenting itself in this way. And I started crying, and then as I sang my way through the song, um, each line was kind of loaded with emotion for me. Mm. And I would just cry and cry and cry until I... um, until I was done with that line, until it felt it didn't feel charged anymore. And then I would move on to the next line and start crying again. And I walked, I ended up walking up this hill and I was overlooking um, this you know, beautiful California valley and just by myself, I was just stayed with it for like probably 45 minutes. I don't know, it felt like forever, but just crying and just feeling it, just allowing myself to feel whatever was going on. And then um, when I got to the end of the song, I was like, okay, I guess that's it. Whatever just happened, whatever happened was what needed to happen. It was gone. The fear wasn't gone right away. Um, I didn't notice it anyway. Um, It wasn't until after the retreat, I came home to San Francisco and I went to sleep the first night. And I had... That first afternoon when I got home, I had an incredible meditation session. It was this like pure bliss. And it was something I hadn't experienced before. Mm-hmm. I'd done five days of meditation. And if all, I'd learned a lot about how to meditate, but I hadn't had this like just total bliss feeling. I felt like I was on drugs. It was strange. Yeah. Um, but I just said, okay, that was what was happening. You know, that's, that's just what's going on right now. I'm, that's great. And then I went to sleep. And in the middle of the night, I woke up and I noticed that the fear was was gone essentially like it had changed I had changed the relationship to it wow and I it was a dog that barked in the middle of the night actually that made me realize that I heard this dog bark in the distance and um and it was like I could feel the space in my experience of my awareness I felt the space where I would have felt a jolt of fear from that dog barking. And there was just nothing. It was like an empty gap. Wow. It's and like that zip car smoothing things out internally this smoothing time. Smoothing it out internally. <laughs> exactly. The inner game of experience design. <laughs> so 
I woke up my partner and I was like, this is, I think I did it. I think I let go of something really big. And um, we just kind of looked at each other and just kind of celebrated that in the middle of the night. And I couldn't believe it. It was the best thing that's ever happened to me. It was all that I had been wanting through all of that impatience, right? Like, why even move to New York? Why even um, start a startup? It all kind of made sense all of a sudden. It's pretty incredible. (laughs) So I sat on the couch for the next few months after that. (laughs) <laughs> and just hung out and meditated all day. Like, I just didn't want to do anything. I, I was like, I'm good. I'm happy. Yeah. Um, I remember I was working with a coach at the time, um, um, a career coach. And I went in the next day and I was like, I don't, I don't need this anymore. Like, I'm, uh, it doesn't matter what job I take or whatever. I'm, I found contentment that doesn't seem to depend on my circumstances. And did it have something to do with what you said earlier about doing versus being? Yeah, I think that um, it absolutely does. I think I had not experienced being for a very long time. I think I had been in the doing mindset for... um, I feel like we all start out being, like when we're little. And so to me, it felt like a remembering of something I already naturally knew how to do. Yeah, there's some science about that. Your first, I think, four or five years, you haven't developed some of the things that allow, that make it so it's harder to just be. Right. Yeah. That's really cool. Like Um, language, right? Even language. It's a language, and I think in this recent Michael Pollan book, he was talking about the sense of self. Yeah. And how when you don't have that, then you're just in this world and being, and then suddenly this idea of self comes in and you have to do things to protect or whatever. Like think about giving a presentation as an example of this. When we make a presentation and you see, you know, you're, you're first giving a presentation, a talk, let's say it's like a 30 minute talk. The first time you give it, um, for a lot of people, I think there's two things going on. One is that the talk is kind of unrefined because it's the first time you're giving it. But the other thing is that there's, anxiety there and there's fear and there's other things that are happening in the mind around that are actually more of the the doing kind of stuff it's the it's the, it's the thoughts intruding um on the experience and i think what happens the reason people get better as they give a talk over and over again is not only the iterative improvement of the talk itself that you know you reflect upon what happened and you change your slides around or whatever but the the really beautiful thing is when the anxiety goes away because you've just done this a million times and you're like, I know how to give this talk. I know any question that could possibly come up. I know how I'm going to answer it. And what does that allow? It allows, it allows you to be on stage. And when you can be on stage, it's a completely different experience for you and for the audience. Hmm. It's, yeah, that's so interesting, this idea that you can just by being still do something, you know, like you're on stage, you're not doing nothing, right? You're not right. sitting on the couch for two months after an amazing meditation retreat, right? You're giving a presentation, but there's still some aspect of being that is qualitatively different. It's, I mean, you said like the lack of anxiety. 
That's very interesting. And that feels like that's the full spectrum, the same in the same way that a designer has to learn how to be and do. It's that's we've all like it's not we've all experienced that at times, right? That experience of like having in having to do something at first and being very it being very awkward and then eventually learning how to just be with it. I think actually sex is like this too, like having sex for the first time. It's like <laughs> Oh yeah, <laughs> the level of self consciousness oh that most people experience is really intense, yeah. and then it takes a while, and then you're just being to learn how to be with it. Yeah, I love it. Um, we're running short on time. One last question I had for you is about this fear that that changed after this moment of this meditation retreat. And my question is, does it come back? You said it's in the it's not in the driver's seat. And you've also mentioned it not being there. And so can you just tell me a little bit, you know, in, in something like this big transformation, it's hard to imagine it's completely gone. And so I'm curious what that's like for you and how you describe that. It's not gone, um, but it is off to the side. Um, and I heard about this. I'd heard about it before with, um, I think it was Elizabeth Gilbert's book, Big Magic, which I really like. She talked about fear being in the driver's seat. And she said, I'm just not going to let fear take the, take the wheel. I'm going to take the wheel. And um, I didn't understand what that meant. I mean, I've, I've read a lot of self-help books over the years that sort of said something like that. Um, there's a book called Love is Letting Go of Fear that is just about this one thing. But what does that mean to let go of fear? And I thought it meant to run headlong into it. So I would, especially in the startup world, have a lot of experiences of really bullying myself into doing things that I was afraid of. And I guess to some extent that worked, but um, I didn't realize at the time that it's possible to kind of move the like high watermark or something like I'm, I'm using maybe too many different analogies here, but it's okay. <laughs> but that um, that it's possible to just change your own relationship to it. And so now um, I experience fear differently, and it's really hard to describe how it's different. But um, social anxiety is gone to the extent that I had it, um, and um, a lot of the kinds of stuff that would have really gotten me wrapped up within myself have just, I don't experience it that way anymore. Um, in front of an audience, I used to have total stage fright, but now like I just gave a talk in May to, you know, a hundred and something people. And my experience of it was like, I was sitting on stage. Um, my hands were kind of tingling a little bit. Um, and maybe I was like sweating a little bit or something, but that's, that was, I was, I was kind of like just looking at it. I was going, oh, that's interesting. My hands are tingling and I'm sweating a little bit, but I felt present. Whereas in the past, not, I wouldn't have even noticed that my hands were tingling <laughs> or I was sweating. I would have been completely wrapped up in the inner self-talk mm. of being on stage and, oh my God, am I going to say the right thing or not say the right thing or whatever. Yeah, it's like the process instead of the content of the experience you're noticing. Oh, 
here's the sweaty palms, here's the blah, 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 instead of this story of content of I'm afraid, how are people going to receive this? Yeah. And I would much rather experience what's real, which is how my body is doing and what's right around me and then um, then something that's not real, which is all of those thoughts. It's awesome. Uh, so my last question for you is from this place where you're, you're doing better on sleep, and I know we didn't talk about that as much as we could have, and your fear has changed. How do you think about what you want to be doing with your time or being with your time? I don't even know what word to use. Mm-hmm. <laughs> What's up with you today? I'm coaching a lot, and that's been really exciting because humans are so complex and interesting. Um, and I work in six-week cycles, and I got this idea from Jason Freed from Basecamp, and I just it resonated for me. And I make a plan, and I don't think really a whole lot about what's going to happen six, more than six weeks from now but I make a plan for the next six weeks and um, it feels close enough to me that I can check in on it every week regularly. And like, I feel like this new sense of discipline that's really great. It's what I've always wanted because the impatience was keeping me from adopting any kind of system like that for any period of time. It was just too, I, I would, I was too agitated, too much anxiety. And, um, and, yeah, so that, I don't even, that's a whole other topic of the relationship between discipline and fear and all these different things, but that's been really powerful. So, um, you know, six weeks, six weeks at a time, I mean, I'm starting a new business here with coaching and I've started it from the beginning of the year. Um, and so it's been, um, it's been a real challenge, but I feel it growing organically and I'm learning how to do sales and marketing for the first time, like kind of in my own authentic way and um, just exploring. I mean, I feel like it's a continuation of the explorations, but with um, much more of a clear point of view now and more discipline to what I'm doing. And I really have seen the fruits of that like right away compared when I compare it to the startup time, you know, that we talked about earlier. What are the fruits? Um, The clear point of view that I have about why I'm doing coaching, it keeps me doing it. And the doubts that come up, which do still come up, are just not as powerful. They don't grip me the same way they used to. Mm. And that, I think, allows me to go deeper. And it's, it's through that going deeper that a business actually gets built that can function. That's awesome. <laughs> And where would people find you if they wanted coaching? Um, nerdcoach.io. Great. Well, is there any last thing you'd like to share, anything that you're kind of walking away thinking about or you want anyone listening to this to end with, or is that a good place to stop? I'm thinking a lot about consciousness um, coming out of this and our kind of in a, in incomplete models of consciousness and the mind and like... Um, it's, that's where that's where my mind is. I really want to that's where my curiosity is right now. I really I wish we had better words for um, what's possible 
within ourselves and the transformations that we can go through. And yet I understand why these kinds of personal transformations are so often described as indescribable (laughs) because there isn't language for a large part of our experience or our awareness. Yeah. It's definitely a challenge, very complex topic. We have a few, you know, billion neurons and trillion connections between them. And then there's a lot going on beyond just what's in our minds, the rest of our body and the environment. So definitely um, excited to have your curiosity there. That's what we need. (laughs) And um, I guess the one thing I think about hearing you describe that is just this lesson from Zipcar of simplifying. And when it feels simpler, is that something that's close to what you're looking for? Like or this internal experience mm-hmm. where you talked about that meditation retreat and it just, yeah. something was missing. It was simpler. Internal refactoring. <laughs> that's what I'm about right now. And also like that, we could t- go on about Marie Kondo and all that and how, you know, simplifying in the physical sense has been incredibly helpful for me yeah and we should another time yeah it'd be great to do another chat sometime thank you well that's the end of the conversation with carl uh pretty interesting i I think you agree with the the meditation experience he had haven't heard a lot of experiences like that from a lot of friends who have tried meditation in any case this uh is a great example of this search for meaning and how it can really change the work you do and all of us eventually and that's all for today so if you have any thoughts or feedback feel free to let me know otherwise i look forward to seeing you in the next episode